So with the ballad of liberation from the khandhas and the introduction and the meditation, do you have any things to say or questions to ask or points to bring up? I felt this one harder than last week. I understand the enhances I think are better. This one was a little more tough to stay on, to stay with. So I appreciated your kind of mm-hmm. comments and bringing me back to wherever from daydreaming. I read a book um, not long ago um, about Meiji Cow, and I've also read uh, Upasaka Ki. And both of these are completely liberated meditation practitioners, women who are completely enlightened. And when they speak about the khandhas, it's amazing because it becomes really clear that the movement of attention away from the immediacy of what's happening is, is where the cycle starts. And yet the ability just to stay and not move and not move, and not move, and not move, is not something that most of us have a lot of experience with. And so, you know, when I read these books, it, it really, it was really apparent to me that the Arahants, the enlightened ones, understand the Khandas. They really get it. They get the connection between the way this whole thing works, and the way the mind moves, and the kind of grasping that happens. But I can so relate to the fact that it's not straightforward, you know. And that's why, you know, when we were setting this class up, I thought it would be important that people had a preliminary, some preliminary experience. Because just to dive in here without any would be um, a little hard going. Last week, you were really helpful. I asked you what not just to explain it, but tell me what does it look like for someone with a terminal illness? And I don't know if you remember that question. But you handled it beautifully and helped, and I actually have been processing that all week. Um, what would not grasping, not using eye, not using mind pain look like for overwhelming grief? there's overwhelming grief, there needs to be something that's big enough to receive it, first of all. You need to be present with where you're at. Yeah. So the the most important thing is just to touch what's present and to be very kind and compassionate to what's present. How can you get that in mind? When you begin to get a sense that this is something which is universal, then it can shift. So there's a story from the time of the Buddha. Kisa Gotami lost her son. And he was an infant or or a toddler. And she was so distraught with grief that she was a little bit out of her mind. And so she thought she just needed to bring this baby who had died to somebody who would bring this baby back to life. So she asked, who's going to bring this baby back to life? And they said, well, the only person that they know who would have that ability would be the Buddha. Go find the Buddha. So the Buddha, she went to the Buddha carrying the baby who had died in her arms. 
And she asked the Buddha for medicine to bring this baby back to life. And he said, I can give you the medicine. And I can bring this baby back to life. But first, you have to collect a single mustard seed from the house where nobody has experienced death. So she went knocking on the doors. And she said, you know, if you can give me a mustard seed, then I can turn it into medicine. It will bring my baby back to life. And so they said, well, of course we know. We'll give it to you. And then she said, but did anybody in this house die? And they said, yes, you know, grandparents died. She goes to the next one. Aunts died. Went to the next one. Parents died. Went to the next one. Children died. There was not a single house in the entire village that hadn't experienced death. And then she got it, that this is a universal condition. It was not only just the enormity of the loss of her child, but it is what we each have to experience in our life. There was not a single mustard seed that she could find that came from the house that didn't experience death. When she realized that, then she was able to shift it from my grief to the grief of what happens when you lose somebody that you love or lose something like your own health that you cherish. Sometimes what happens when we're dealing with so much grief like that is our body needs extra special care because When we're dealing with an enormous grief, it has a way of being a magnet for all the other griefs that we've ever experienced that have never been processed. And so not only are you dealing with one something that's huge, you're dealing with everything that has never been completely resolved. And it takes a lot of care to allow the system to feel that level of loss and let it release in a way where you're not superimposing on it an idea about how it's supposed to be. The time in the conditioned world that we run by is so different from the time in the detail. So, for instance, something like the five animals is over in a split second. Do you know what I mean? I'm not sure I understand your question. The question is about the aggregates and and what she was saying, or it's not a question, it was a statement, that, you know, the aggregates come and go, and they all come and go together in a split second. And so there was just a statement that the, 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 like, the ability to know that is different from like what we are, what what our contemporary um, sensibilities are used to. Is it something like that? Sense of time. Yeah. Sense of time passing. So this is a true statement. It's not a question. It's just a the recognition that. one of the reasons why meditation is an encourage, is strongly encouraged is because when our our minds focus we be, begin to be able to see things more clearly so what is a blur 
becomes more clearly delineated elements. And without concentration, that's not possible. So one of the reasons why meditation is encouraged is so that we can begin to see what's actually happening. The challenge with that, with everything, there's a shadow. The challenge with that is is that people begin to think that the only way that they can meditate is when the conditions are such that their minds can focus and they can become very, very still and very concentrated. Now, there's certainly a value in having conditions that support that. But at any moment, any of us can ask, what's happening right now and how am I relating to it? And so whether you are aware of the elements or the khandas in their specific categories, or whether you just have a feeling of, oh, this hurts, oh, oh, this yuck, or oh, I can't focus very clearly, or oh, I feel grief, I feel tremendously sad. You can know that. And you can know the general experience of not wanting it or wanting it. So the movement of attention and intention is something that we can begin to get a sense of even if our concentration is not so refined that we can see all the different specifics. Because if the only way that we could see and meditate was if we had very, very, very specific conditions, then we're all up a creek without a paddle. Because how often do we have those conditions? And how often do I find in my practice of trying to apply in daily life is that I'm sort of, quote, daily in the dollar short. I'm aware, oftentimes after, I'll look at the eightfold path in my speech where I actually, the hindrances all, I'm after, I think, oh yeah, that's what that was. I play catch up a lot. And I think that's what happens until we get a sense that that um, this stuff is so important that we, we, we let it, it begins to shift, but the shifting is very gradual. You know, so I've been meditating 30 years now, all right? So it's less ketchup. Yes. More mustard. <laughs> <laughs> I still do. I still catch things after the fact, and there's still plenty of situations where I see things in hindsight that I didn't see in the moment. But there's, it's, it's, there's more an ability to be with what's happening rather than having to deal with it after the fact. But 30 years is different than 5 years or 10 years or even 15 years, you know? So we have to kind of understand the time frameworks. So we have what we have, we have the present moment, we have what we do with it, and then we can also know that at every moment there's an opportunity to see what's happening and to let go. And so, you know, when we catch something in, like, retrospectively, we can also realize, well, we saw it, but we don't have to make any extra story about it. I wish I had done it differently, or if only, you know, we see it and then let it go. Meditating, sometimes you develop some place in your, in your body and you've been meditating on something different uh, and the pain doesn't go away. Do you shift and keep your attention on the pain to, you know, to see what happens? Or if you move it to a different part of the body, sometimes the attention is someplace differently, the pain goes away. But how do you deal with that? 
So the question was about pain. And if a pain arises while you're meditating on something else, how do you deal with it? Do you move your attention to the pain or do you move your attention away from the pain? Or how do you deal with pain? Are you talking about physical or emotional pain? Physical pain in the, in the body, yeah. But it could be emotional pain as well, all right? So it's helpful when the practice has settled enough that when things arise that are impressing themselves on your attention, that you bring your attention to what is happening, okay? You don't try and push it away. You actually move towards it. Now, sometimes there's a whole practice around working with pain. There's a practice of learning to relax around it, of soften around it. There's ways of moving to the edge of it. There's ways of of cutting across the center of it. There's ways of surrounding it. There's ways of being in the center of it. Okay? So there's many different ways that you can actually work with physical pain. But one of the things about physical pain that many of us have deeply ingrained is resistance. So all of these things are different ways of working with the resistance to pain and to learn to soften around the resistance to the pain because we don't like pain. We want it to go away. It's aversion. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. So when there's pain, there's often very close next to it is resistance and next to that is often fear. Yeah? So what is needed is like a submarine sandwich. You you work with the top layer first. You You work with the bread. Then when you can deal with the bread and open it up, then you got a pickle. And then and then you got a tomato and then you got coleslaw and then you got tofu. Right? <laughs> but you can't work with the tofu until you get the bread and the pickle and the coleslaw and the coleslaw until you work with the different layers. So when you've got pain, immediately you've got these other things happening. You've got resistance, you've got fear, and then sometimes you've got this overlay of I'm not supposed to be feeling any of these things. Right? I'm supposed to be a good meditator and not be feeling fear and resistance. So what we have to work with is the thing that's closest, the most obvious, the one that's nearest to us. And then work with that. So if there's a thought, I'm not supposed to be feeling that, then then we can recognize that's a thought. In fact, it's an I thought. And I thoughts need to be known in awareness. That's what you need to do with I thoughts is just know them. Okay, so you know, all right, I have this thought. And then when you recognize that that's just a thought, then it can begin to dissipate. And then the next thing is the fear. Oh, but, 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 yeah, but I, but, I, but, yeah, but, but. And then you can just bring attention gently to the fear. Oh, this is what fear feels like. And then soften through the fear. And then you touch the resistance, which is almost like a physical reaction to the, to the not wanting to be with the pain. Yeah? It's a both physical and mental and you can know that and feel that and open to that and then soften to that. Then when you get through the different layers of the submarine sandwich, do you get to the tofu just with the pain? Then you can work with it in many different ways, coming to the edge of it, surrounding it, moving through the center of it, seeing the space that it occupies, landing in the middle of it, just being present in the middle of it, and then watching what happens to it. 
So we have this kind of unwritten agenda. I'll pay attention to you for five seconds as long as you promise you'll go away. And then we have to recognize that that's just an agenda that we have that's another form of aversion. It's very clever, but nevertheless a mask of aversion. I don't want to be attention. Pay attention to this. Yeah. So how would you explain uh, pain associated with a terminal illness and uh, some physicians are trained in uh, forms of uh, meditation to get their patients to maybe accept, you know, the pain that is associated with the condition. So um, would the physician approach it the same way that you are approaching it, you know, with different layers of submarine sandwich to get the patient to accept and if you, and maybe acceptance is not the correct word, but once you have ex, maybe accepted, you know, your illness, you can move on. I'm healthy, and when I meditate, if there's a pain, I can just, okay, pain, go away, you know, in a sense. The pain is gone. But let's say that a person has a terminal illness, and this is real pain. So how do you address that? You tell the pain to go away, but the pain is not. No, you don't tell the pain to go away. Maybe it's a different, maybe my choice of words is not correct, but you know, how would you handle that in a meditative arena? Okay, so some people have the ability to to direct the pain in their bodies and to make it go away. And there can be a value in that. This is the ability to, to look at pain and to watch a reactivity towards it. So when a person has a terminal illness, there, it's, it can be the case that there's a lot of pain associated with that. And, and with that, there can be an enormous amount of fear and a, a sense of powerlessness and a sense of being out of control and a sense of not wanting to be present with any of those things. Okay. It's, it's the reactivity, it's the reaction to the pain where a lot of the struggle is. So when, when somebody is able to open up to the powerlessness or able to open up to the fear or able to open up to the not wanting to be present for this and soften around that, then those things can shift and, and there can be much more sense of peace and well-being independent of whether or not the pain levels change. So when people are working with terminal illness, when people are working with pain, they're not trying to get them to get the pain to go away. They're trying to get them to work with their relationship with the pain. So that on top of the pain, they're not adding the the fear, the flight, the resistance, the fight. Yeah. And so there can be a lot of pain, but very little activity around it. I, I think a lot of hospitals are moving towards, you know, the mindfulness. <clears throat> just uh, to ease from uh, discomfort as they transition to you know. So the Buddha talked about in his last years of his life how, you know, it felt like his body was just held together by by bands and rubber bands and that the only time he could have any relief at all was when his mind focused to such an incredible degree that he was not um, 
the experience of pain in the body was not impressing itself in the concentration that he had. So this is a highly absorbed state of concentration. So he was working with it in a different way. He wasn't working with it by dealing with the reactivity to the the pain. He was working with it by absorbing his mind so profoundly that the pain didn't impress itself into the concentration. Yes. Yeah. I have um, migraines, so I have a lot of pain, and I understand about the layers. And um, but tonight, when I was meditating, and I had a little bit of a migraine tonight, which made me not want to be here. But at any rate, um, for me, when you started talking about it's not me and me, you know, like get away from the identification. How would that figure into this whole thing? Because I find when you're working with pain, you're so focused on yourself. And so that's my first question. And then my second question is just, what happens when you go knock on all the doors to get your mustard seed? You just get a whole lot more pain. <laughs> you know, when I start identifying with, without just myself, but with the rest of the world, then that, that I, I bring in a whole lot of pain. So it, both questions are around identification. And the first one is, is how do you deal with pain without identifying with it? And, okay, so we start, we don't start with migraines. We start with something that's a little bit softer, okay? We start with just something like movement, okay? So we can each move our hand up and down, and you can feel that. So just do it, you know, all right? So there's sensation. It's not tremendously exciting. It's not terribly aversive. It's just sensation, yeah? So there's movement and there's sensation, and you might feel the current of the air on your skin, yeah? So these are all the things that we're experiencing. But there's a difference between the actual experience of that and then what we do with it, which is we say that this is my arm moving, or these are my feelings. So there's the one thing, which is the actual contact, And then the other thing is our identification or forming a self around the sensations. This is me moving my arm. That's the identification bit. The other bit is just the raw, direct experience of contact and sensation and pressure and the feeling of wind against the skin. It doesn't have an I or a me or a my. So one needs to begin to get a feeling of non-identification with stuff that's not so activating. With intense pain, it's activating. So we need to practice with picking up a cup, with drinking a glass of water, with going to the toilet, with walking back and forward in a room where there aren't people shooting at us, you know? And And then work with sitting and having the knees hurt or the back hurt and working with the, the, the kind of normal discomfort of that before you get these kind of grip of, you know, really strong stuff. It, the really strong stuff, it's very hard to have that be our first entrance. Yeah? And so then when we get a sense of sensations or feeling or without identification, then, then when we knock on the door... And we can see that every human being that we have contact with also has the same thing. We're not identifying. We're just allowing the recognition that this is not a personal truth. This is a universal truth. This is not only about my pain. 
but this comes with the human condition. And it, I don't switch from it being my pain to, to, to it being everybody's pain that I identify with. It doesn't move from a self-identification of mine to taking on board everybody else's because it's theirs that I need to take possession of. It becomes something that just held in an open awareness that this is the reality of our human predicament. You know, it reminds me that my first first teacher, he made a couple of statements that seem to make more sense now. But he said, when washing dishes, wash dishes. When walking, walk. When thinking, think. Whatever, whatever activity you're doing, just be with that. So it, uh, as soon as you start to think about, I am washing the dishes, that, that unity seems to disappear. You have to bring it back again by just refocusing. So it seems like anything, suffering included, and suffering and suffering, just to be aware of that, uh, whatever's happening, to get into it and to more or less accept it or embrace it or work it down. And then recognize that all these things are more impermanent, don't change. It's not, it, like you say, everyone is in that same condition. It's the human condition. We all experience that. So it seems to be relieving, you know, whenever you end it. You know, I, I don't want to get one time of meditating and 45 minutes into the sitting, my legs were just killing me. And, and the teacher before, he had said, just concentrate on your whole body. When you feel some pain, concentrate on it. And I was amazed because... When I was concentrating on that pain, I could feel it just melt away. I mean, it's just the most amazing thing I ever felt. So it is incredible because our sense of pain is, is that it is, is solid, that it is permanently unpleasant, and that it is belonging to me. And when you change your attention and focus on it in different ways, you can recognize that this is not necessarily the way it is. It can shift. So I don't know if you have ever experienced something really unpleasant, just turning into like sensations, where the feeling of pleasant or unpleasant didn't seem to have relevance anymore. And so it shifts. And then the solidity of it can shift because it can move and change shape and change forms and change intensity. And then the sense of me can fall away as we can begin to see that this is something which is just arising in a field, constantly arising in a field. And then the grasping or the identification is what makes it or turns it into mine or me that is hurting. So I'm sitting here trying to meditate, and my foot's falling asleep. And it starts to hurt. So you're saying that if I, I mean, the simplest thing is to move my foot. But you're saying that if I thought about and concentrated on that discomfort and that pain, it, I'd go on meditating. No, it doesn't, it, what I'm saying doesn't mean, doesn't require any particular action. But what it does is it opens up the opportunities for different choices. So in our normal world, when something hurts, we just move. That's just, we don't think about it. If something hurts, we just move. 
When we're meditating, we insert the option to do it differently, to not move. It doesn't mean that we cannot move. It means that we have another choice of not moving. Now, if your foot's falling asleep, it's often because there's not enough circulation. And that's a posture thing, okay? That has to do with the way you're sitting. And so sometimes it can be helpful to uh, change your posture so that the circulation flows better, all right? But there are plenty of pains that are not related to posture. They're just related to having a body, not the way the body is sitting. And so if the only strategy that we have with pain is to move, then when we have pains that we can't move to get rid of, then we're stuck. So one of the reasons why meditation is so powerful is because it gives us other options of what we can do with stuff. So you really could concentrate on that and not move your foot and keep on meditating. That's right. But you see, because the, the sleepy foot is related to the posture, then what I would recommend is, is that you really work with alignment of your posture to make sure that there's a sense of ease and well-being and relaxation and the right relationship between the sacrum and the spine. Because when, when there's the right alignment, then the circulation is flowing properly. And when there isn't the right alignment, it isn't flowing properly. And there's all kinds of physical pains and sensations that come as a result of poor alignment. So rather than just focus on the foot, I would focus on the posture. But, I mean, I also, you know, the first five years of meditating, I could not sit with my legs crossed. I had to sit with a bench. I just couldn't do it. So we also have to recognize that, you know, our bodies have what they're used to, and sometimes sitting like this is not what it does very easily, you know? One more question. The, I understood when we started that uh, the contemplation was on the aggregates, and I, and I felt pretty clear on, on, on how each of them might have a certain character and, give, and, uh, and in conjunction give rise to self, or, or the idea of identification and that being sort of self, self-organizing. And as uh, you know, we move through the physical meditation, it, you know, it, made, it made real good sense. You know, uh, at some point, the breathing was a really sophisticated process, uh, but I wasn't really present for it at the time. It, had, it was happening while I was focused on something else. And uh, I started to you know, really see, if, you know, these aggregates are like, they, they have the potential to be like scissors. You know, and they're chopping up, they're chopping up the film into these little frames. And uh, whatever happens to be in the frame is whatever happened to be in my head when I was sitting down with, or, or whatever my idea of the tempo was, of sort of that continuity. And, uh, you know, it, I'm, is the pain sort of, you know, the frames have to be in a certain order for that pain to be. You know, they have to have that sense of that continuity or that connection or that path, you know, of the pain. And, and when it's scattered on the ground, it's really not there, that sense of identity. I mean, if, it, uh, in contemplating any of the frames or any, any one of the aggregates, you know, that stuff kind of wants to shuffle together in a way in something that makes sense. But uh, that was a really profound experience. I mean, it's a really seen, uh, of something seeing how, I, you know, how that self is forming up. You know, it's forming up based on whatever I sat down with. And, and is, is that really, it, is it useful? If I, you know, I have the picture of the frame, whatever uh, happened to occupy those cut-up frames. And, uh, 
but I kept thinking of these activists as being almost a, almost like each of them being like a scissor or, or working in conjunction, you know, as scissors to cut up the frame. I mean, is that sort of sort of how they operate together? Because you know, I kept thinking of this sort of disorganized pile that was a very simple images that were easy to understand, but that how each of those images, you know, was something I sat down with before I ever started meditating. You know, just all that junk that's in. Well, we, our normal experience of life is of being solid and of being separate, yeah? Yes. And, and that, that's not the reality. So each of these tools is a kind of like a crowbar to get into the way we habitually relate to things and begin to start getting some leverage on what we take to be normal and recognize that actually that isn't normal, yeah? That isn't actually the way it is. It's the way we commonly experience it, but it isn't in accordance with the way it actually is. So when we have tools that support a a relationship that moves towards less suffering, that moves towards a closer grasp of what's actually happening, when it moves towards giving us more resource with pain and difficult feelings and more capacity to be with others that are not easy to be with, then those are good tools. And when they contribute to confusion or when they contribute to less resource, when they contribute to less understanding about one's own experience or towards what's happening with others, then those are not good tools. Yeah. So for me, there are so many tools that are offered Like if we just look at the fourth foundation of mindfulness, I don't even know that I remember them all. There's working with the hindrances, there's working with the seven factors of enlightenment, there's working with the six sense media, there's working with the the five aggregates, there's working with the four noble truths. This is five tools of ways of grouping our experience in order to get some leverage on this sense that everything that's happening is solid, I'm separate, and it all belongs to me. You know, mm-hmm. and yet we we've got like a workshop filled with tools. Mm-hmm. We need to learn how to use them and pick them up, and when they're useful and when to put them down. Yeah. Yeah. Versus sure. Versus letting the tools sort of form up and use us. And exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We have choice over when we pick the stuff up and use them, and when we put them down. But, you know, you were talking about the, the way things scatter, and it just the image of while you were speaking just reminded me of, you know, there are nine contemplations of the charnel ground contemplations, of watching the body in different stages of decomposition. Because one of the things that is strong for most people is the identification that we are our body. We really have a lot of work to get a leverage under that, that... I am not my body. My body is here. It functions. I need to feed it and wash it and rest. But it's not who I am ultimately. And the nine charnel prawn contemplations work with the different stages of decomposition. And it goes through, you know, stuff that is, you know, we would call probably gross, you know. And then it moves to just bones. And then it moves to, you know, bones being scattered, and then it moves to dust so that you take something that is recognizable as a human body and then watch it as it begins to go through its various different stages until you can't 
There's nothing in it anymore which you can even look at and say, that's a body, you know? And that sense of, of breaking apart, the, the, the way that we, we think of it as solid, that, it, that it's here, that it is mine, that I own it, that it belongs to me, these are different ways of getting some, a little bit more space around all of that so we can have a different relationship with what's going on. I, I have one other question. I, 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 you know, with, with these cut-up images, with these things that, you know, in, in, in that sensation of movement that's neither pleasant or unpleasant, and you're looking at it as five frames, and there's no sensation to it at all then. And I thought that's something about that seems about right. Still what uh, sort of, I bring up because what you said about time, in um, that strange sense of, not necessarily time in the sense, but a strange sort of sensation of it. Um, you know, it, it was, it, it, what really started to make it easier for that sort of chopping process to happen was this sense of tempo. What, what in Buddhist thought um, um, doctrinally describes that feeling? Tempo. That feeling of tempo that was coming up. Tempo. Yeah, tempo with, with the inhalation and the exhalation of the breathing, the thing that, that uh, was sort of in the background behind all of this. It's sort of what was in between these frames. You know, they were stacked in an orderly way. You know, that small amount of space that was in between. Well, the, you know, they the, seem to make them concise and small. And, the Abhidhamma and people can talk about tempo and time and time frameworks and mind moments. That's, that's not what I do, because what I do is direct experience, and I don't have concepts that relate to direct experience in terms of tempo. But the, the, the people who study Abhidhamma can break apart experience in terms of frameworks and time frameworks and all the rest of that. I think what we need to work with is what's actually happening and how are we relating to it and keep it very simple. And not pay too much attention to the tempo, just accept it if it's there for a while. And it'll okay, change. Okay, well, thank you. Yeah, good. So it's... Um, so time to close. And thank you very much for your attention and your interest. And it's just lovely to see everybody here. Thank you for being here. Yeah.